welcome to the History of Fub, where we explore the hidden backstories behind the things you love to do. My name is Russ Frostick, and today I'm joined by Christopher Plant, who returns after a short hiatus. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're also joined by Allegra Frank. Hey, Allegra. Psych. Yeah, Allegra's not here. This is actually, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the very first time Allegra has not been on the show. She is Mm. currently recording Polygon Show right as we record this, so it's not personal, but we do have a very... Even more special guest in the form of Matt Patches, senior entertainment editor, I want to say is what he's called. And we brought him on for a very special purpose. And that is, take it away, Matt Patches. Dun, 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 dun. Ta-da! Okay, you're off the wow. show now. <laughs> Mission <laughs> no, that Impossible! That was great. It's the Mission TV Impossible. show and the movies, but mostly the movies. Uh, why are we talking about the history of Mission Impossible in this episode, Matt Patches? Why are we talking about it? Well, there's a new installment of the hit Mission Impossible franchise, and uh, I assume that's the reason we're talking about it. You never told me why, but um... yeah, that that is why. And and although you and presented it, although you presented it like this was a sponsored episode, it really isn't. It'd be nice <laughs> if we were getting money. Paramount Pictures. No, that's not true. <laughs> but in truth, we all just really, really like Mission Impossible as a franchise. But I don't know a lot about uh, the history of it. And Matt Patches is like a hardcore, would you say a hardcore fan of Mission Impossible? I think Mission Impossible might be beginning to current installment and the most fun movie franchise that we have still going, maybe ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. You know, I look at something like James Bond, which is... I forget how many, 25, 26 installments deep or something, and it's, you know, it's spotty. There are great, great movies. There might be a masterpiece or two in there, but there are a lot of bad ones. And I think, as we will discuss here, hopefully, that Mission Possible might be, every movie might be worthy of, but, uh, at least be fun. Before we get into the history, really quick, are we weird? Like, is it weird, we weird that there are three people on the same podcast who all really like these movies or is something changed we're like now everybody's like actually yeah those movies were fantastic i don't think there was ever a moment where mission impossible except for maybe after two but for the most part i don't think there was ever a moment where mission impossible went through the like fast and the furious phase of like oh these are garbage movies but wait they're not actually garbage movies i think they've always been considered pretty solid action movies but haven't really been levied like huge huge amounts of praise they're just like an enjoyable yeah. time i think I there's a realize. reason i think there's a few reasons for that that we'll probably get into but one is that they don't make many of them there mm-hmm. have only been now there's going to be a sixth one since 1996 i mean that's a lot of time and uh, many years went by between each sequel and that's almost unheard of in today's sequel culture you know you hear i was just we just did a huge package on the dark night over at polygon and christopher nolan in one interview that i was reading for that mentioned how unlikely it was that he got four years to devote to sequelizing the dark night for the dark night rises now that didn't work out so well but uh that's something that no one is afforded in hollywood and tom cruise is this kind of untouchable old school star you don't have a person like this working in this era still uh you know this movie this mission impossible fallout coming out soon is is still a star driven movie and he is the auteur of this entire franchise and i think that that is a reason why they're kind of pure and fun and they constantly cycle out new directors and they keep it fresh and it's funny 
I was reading Roger Ebert's review of the first 1996 Mission Impossible. Give four out of five stars, said, this is like an urgent, immediate, if we take it for what it is right now, so enjoyable. And then Mission Impossible 2, notorious Mission Impossible 2, <laughs> I had to go see what Roger Ebert thought about that. Four out of five stars, same wow, exact thing. Doesn't it matter, just loves it. And that rings true to me because because they're just so different and they're they're bringing whatever from that era because there's so much space, they always feel timely and timeless. And I think that's maybe why they connect with people. Okay, I want, I want to talk about, because the, the one thing that I really have not experienced, I don't think I've seen a single episode, and that is the original Mission Impossible series that this movie franchise is based on. Like, where did this come from? Uh, well, I mean, it came from a, a need for weekly television. Back when that was like when unserialized Let's get more specific, TV. Matt yeah, well, no, I, I, I'm to, to be more specific. To be more specific, it kind of came again from an era where people were just looking for television shows that could run for years and years. The guy who created this sh- created the Mission Impossible television show, Bruce Geller, had worked on Rawhide, um, which is another like a Western TV show, one of a million. Um, that ran. I think he was the executive producer for a year of that show, but still, that show ran. Uh, I want to say it ran eight seasons, two hundred some episodes. These are the type of television shows mm-hmm. people were looking for in the mid '60s, uh, and and Mission Impossible was the type of show that could go on endlessly. It was Mission of the Week, Cloak and Dagger stuff. And remember, it's the height of the Cold War. People are suspicious people are looking for americans to kick some butt and there's this long history of you know it's it's interesting there's spy television that exists westerns are pretty dominant but mission impossible is more of a heist show it's kind of taking the heist movie that was blowing up at the time because of a movie called top copy i don't know if either of you have ever whoa, seen whoa i've never top heard copy. of that movie you've never heard of top Co- oh boy. no we got to get you on this copy. so so Jules Dassin is the director of Top Copy. He was, um, he's a master. And, but of course he was, he, made, he was blacklisted uh, earlier in the 20th century and had to, had to retreat to France. And he made another masterpiece of a movie that you can watch on Filmstruck, if you get that streaming service, called Rafifi. Have you guys ever heard of Rafifi? I've heard of the monkey yes. from Lion King. Uh, I think you can also Rafifi. watch it on Canopy. <laughs> Oh, which, if you have a library card. You yeah, can if you have a library card, it's free. Library streaming service canopy. Rafifi, yeah, it's on the Criterion Collection. It's this gorgeous black and white heist movie. The pin, the keystone scene of that is like they break into um, a jewelry store and through the top, through a roof, it's very Mission Impossible. Actually, it's very Ocean's Eleven. All of these heist movies were influenced by Rafifi. And then when Jules Dassin was allowed to come back to America, he basically was like, I should just do this movie again in English for Hollywood, and that's Top Copy. It's the ultimate heist movie. Everyone wow. copied it. Everyone top copied it. And um, mm. and that's what Mission Impossible aimed to really do. It's coming That's funny because, like, I, I yeah. guess it never occurred to me, and now I feel kind of dumb about, but, like, I've always viewed the franchise as a whole as a spy movie first, or a spy franchise first, and not a heist franchise, but all of the movies are about stealing something really hard to steal. Yeah, I always get caught up. I was taking notes for the podcast, thinking about like how I would describe breaking into the Vatican or breaking into Langley from the first movie. Mm-hmm. And you really have to call them heist scenes. They're always stealing something. It's yeah. just the the good guys get to do 
the heist. Well, I guess in heist movies, you consider them the good guys. They're not really anti-heroes. They're good people who steals things. So um, Sometimes they steal my heart. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Every movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really where Mission Impossible came from as a television show. You could do this on a weekly basis. The show... Uh, there were kind of two incarnations, one that ran in the 60s. They tried to revive in the 80s. That didn't last too long, but obviously uh, They a made a movie, right, in the 80s? They, tr- uh, they tried to make a movie in the 80s. So uh, getting a little ahead of ourselves, they, some, of, some of the episodes, like two-part or three-part episodes that ran in the original series were then like stitched together and played in Europe as movies. They did try to make an 80s movie that – didn't work out because of inflating budgets, and this was mm. when the show was kind of fizzling out, so that didn't work out. But the original show was it was actually produced by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Oh. Uh, it was a Desi Lu production. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if not a lot of people know that Lucille Ball kind of took that company over uh, when they were producing Mission Impossible, when they produced the original Star Trek series. Um, Desi Lu was ahead of its time. And producing a lot of the things that we love today. So thank you, Lucille Ball, for most of pop uh, movie pop culture in the 2010s. Um, and the the show was instantly popular. The format was easy to replicate every week. You know, we hear Lalu Schifrin's amazing theme that I uh, terribly imitated earlier. Uh, that brassy conga drum theme that we really know well. It's really funny that this uh, it's it's an impossible theme actually it's purposely written so that it's really difficult to play it's in this five four time signature i was reading a story (laughs) i cannot find video evidence of this so if anyone listening can find it congratulations please send it to us but this mission impossible theme by lalor schifrin topped the billboard 100 um it came in at 19 Uh, topped is wrong it was on the billboard upper half yeah i mean it was a popular hit it became a hit um Sorry, sorry, I I, want to add one thing to this theme that I love so much is it sounds easier than it is to play. It seems really easy to play. And it results in one of the most wonderful things possible. Anytime you have to go to like a local high school is doing a charity (laughs) symphony where it's like the hits from movies. And like they'll be doing like all these slow songs like Jurassic Park, yada, yada, yada. And there's like a pause and then like out of nowhere the mission impossible tune comes and it's a transition point but the best part is they botch it every time like it sounds like beautiful slow movie songs and then a car wreck of please imitate how they botch it it. it, it's like da 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 and there's a breath and everyone pauses and then (laughs) <laughs> it's like like somebody like there's one kid who's like clanging something something falls over because they, they the violins go too fast like it's it just awful cacophony and and it happened i i it did not hit me until you said that like oh my gosh i had to have seen that happen five or six times it's just very difficult it, I, I, it didn't so occur good. to me well apparently there is video out there of dick clark's american bandstand where they decided since it was on the top it was on the billboard 100 <laughs> they would play the mission impossible theme and people, and people would dance it? but no one could successfully dance to it <laughs> yeah, that's tough. i'm dying to see that video um but yeah so the original show was exactly like the movies are um ethan hunt was not there the original team was led by jim phelps who was played by peter graves who you may remember as the one of the pilots from Airplane. 
Um, not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. No, not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <laughs> the one who keeps saying weird things to the little kid. Uh, yeah. I guess they both do. But uh, yeah, Peter Graves was kind of the key player in all this. And then they would have a rotating team of members, included Martin Landau, Leonard Nimoy, Barbara Bain, Greg Morris, Peter Lupus, and they would kind of float in and out. Um, and the movies have actually done a tremendous job of kind of replicating the format of the episodes. They open with, here's a hidden tape recorder. This is your mission. Okay, now Peter or Jim Phelps, look at your dossiers. Who are you bringing on the mission? They're actually flipping through pages at almost every episode. And then the team will meet up and discuss what the plan is. And then the rest of the episode is just planning a heist or a takedown or – an operation and then executing a whole heck of a lot. Well, that is going to be a a through line of all the movies for (laughs) some reason. Uh, Maybe that's the only way to create more drama. If if you don't want to be a TV episode where you're just completing a mission, you have to turn the premise on its head and send Ethan Hunt against everyone else or his Mm. own team. I, I don't believe that was happening too much on the. It was also series. this was the the TV show was the or well I don't know about the origin but certainly uh, it focused on the idea of like the self destructing tape recorder right where he'd all get the, the mission and it would melt and not only that but the, all the like face mask stuff was from the original uh-huh. series too so they were still doing that um, not as many uh, special effects face masks it would be like Martin Landau is now playing a bad guy yeah. Um, a little trick. But yeah, so that was that ran until, you know, it stopped in the early 70s, picked back up in the 80s, and then went away. As you said, Russ, they tried to do a movie. It was going to be called Good Morning, Mr. Phelps. Um, <laughs> uh, a fun-loving, hug-it-out Mission Impossible movie. Right before Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, did you not watch happen. This. <laughs> did not happen. So then Mission Impossible went away. And uh, that's how we, we come to a little boy... Named Tommy Cruz Mapather the Fourth, who really loved Mission Impossible, and uh, and and the story begins. So everyone's seen the original Mission Impossible. Yes, movie. I love. It is my favorite of the Mission Impossible movies. Red light, green light. It really yes. is the best. That gum. Emilio Estevez getting stabbed by an elevator in the face. <laughs> it was a surprise. It was a surprise. The Mighty Duck Man himself. We're, we're, I should mention, for the, we're not going to spoil the new movie, but we're probably going to go into some spoilers for the other Mission Impossible movies, so just keep that in mind. I hope so. Well, how do you, how do you want to do this? I, I mean, you want me to unpack exactly well, how we I, get I Mission Impossible curious, so 1996 like, do you, for you? Do you get the sense that, like, this was just, obviously he is on the top of the world at this point, Tom Cruise. Do you, yeah. Did you get the sense that, like, he was already a fan of Mission Impossible or was this just like a project that was handed to him and that's how he got so into it? So it's interesting. Just to back up, like where is Tom Cruise at this point? The movie comes out in 1996. They're obviously He's a king. He he is becoming. He's definitely becoming a king. Um, Tom Cruise happens in the late 80s. That's huge for him. But he's not really like an action star. He's Mm. doing a lot of prestige stuff. He's doing The Color of Money. He's doing Born on the Fourth of July. Um, Rain Man is the biggest movie of the year it came out. Uh, I need to look up what year that was, but it a few good Rain Man, Man like made like $100, $200 million. It was is it oh my God. a ridiculous amount of money. Um, I'm trying to imagine something like that happening in this day and age. But yeah, Rain Man was huge. And then he starts kind of doing big movies as Tom Cruise's stock went up and his wallet got fatter uh, and his, his kind of uh, lust for thrills became part of his real life you know he was he's notorious he like loves piloting and helicopters and motorcycles he's an action junkie in real life uh and he did movies like days of thunder 
He did Far and Away, Interview with a Vampire. He's getting a little more like studio driven and blockbustery, <laughs> but it's not it's not action movie. It's not like what we see today in Ghost Protocol or Rogue Nation or Fallout. It's it's not just stunt driven stuff. But so, he's getting sorry, there. Sorry, Queen um, pause for just one second because yeah. I, I swear it's a really important sidebar. Interview with the Vampire, the weirdest movie ever made. <laughs> Why is it weird? Just because I watched it on a plane. That one, there's a lot of like love with children in it. The violence is horrifically extreme. There's all of this stuff involving slavery at the beginning. It like every. It, this seems like a big segue. No, Chris no, it's Pine, not, maybe it's, we'll it's do another segue. episode. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, he was at such a point that he could do that movie where he's like kind of in love with a with child what's her name Chris, kirsten, uh, dunst. kirsten dunst yeah kirsten dunst and everybody's like you know what this makes sense this is good i Classic mean tom one he throws himself into everything and two <laughs> vampires are strange they don't adhere to our <laughs> and human that was a blockbuster rules. book series so yeah, it's pretty safe true. i'm sorry it's being I, I really true to the source this. material it's not it's not peculiar in their world Chris. oh god <laughs> thank you okay <laughs> Half my Twitter. <laughs> anyway, let me uh, swing back into it, Tom's Cruise style. Uh, so in 1993, Tom Cruise starts his own production company. He wants to be in more control of his movies, his destiny. Uh, so he teams up with this like power player talent agent, Paula Wagner, and they start their own company. How do they get to Mission Impossible? Well, Tom Cruise strikes up a huge deal with Paramount Pictures, who owns the rights for Mission Impossible, they say, go through our catalog. What do you want to do? Anything. We kind of, they kind of point to Mission Impossible because it's fodder for a potential franchise or at least like an action movie, a blockbuster. And you can do really whatever you want. Like, it's such an open bag. Yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise like, can either run around or solve a crime or it's a star, it could be a star vehicle the same way it was for Peter Graves and Jim yep. Phelps. Like, the pe- what, what we'll get to with the 1996 movie is that there was a Mission Impossible fan base, and there was a strong love for Jim Phelps. And what happens to Jim Phelps in this movie caused quite an uproar, <laughs> uh, which was probably lost on the younger generation who just ate up Mission Impossible. But anyway, 1996 was the year Tom Cruise would do Jerry Maguire, so he was still he that was a second Oscar nomination. So he didn't have like all of his chips on Mission Impossible as a franchise. Uh, but it's certainly – he's going all in. This movie – he's producing this movie. He's going to make this movie exactly what he wants it to be. He has a very keen sense of what works with audiences. I think we've always seen that. He's he's almost like uh, a political uh, – like a presidential candidate when he puts out a movie. He's walking in line. He's kissing babies. He's shaking hands. He, he loves the audience. And I think that keen sense is built into Mission Impossible, with, which has a – Strange, but it's not really an action movie, right? There aren't no, a lot it's, of set pieces right, it's in this. A thriller, movie. I would describe it as. Yeah, and it, it seems worth noting. I don't like, don't want to go too far with this, but Tom Cruise is a really complicated human being. He obviously deep in the Church of Scientology. He was at this time when Mission Impossible came out. He was fending off accusations about his sexuality and his marriage to Nicole Kidman. It doesn't. It doesn't. Seem far fetched to believe that he wanted something like really intense and action heavy and to like shape his reputation, his personality, and his image. And this is the 1990s. So, like, masculinity still matters in Hollywood. Yeah. And this movie, I think, helps him out 
in that regard a little bit. It, it is sort of amazing, and I don't know how much more you talk about this, but like his whole the Scientology thing and jumping on the couch when he was dating Katie and all that stuff. Like Katie, the are fact you on a first that, name basis with Katie. <laughs> yeah, me and Katie. BFF. Hey, Katie, baby. The fact that. He uh, he is so good at doing what he does best on the screen. The fact that even with that stuff in mind, you can uh, transcend that and like see him as whatever ridiculous character he's playing on the screen tells you how talented talented he is as an actor. What, you know, yeah. certainly don't agree with the Scientology stance. I don't know whether he still openly supports that, but. You know, as an actor, he's very talented. Yeah, he has an energy that few people do, and it it always shows in these movies. Yeah. So it's unclear exactly how uh, Cruz and Paula Wagner landed on Brian De Palma to make Mission Impossible, but it's not surprising that they did. Uh, Brian De Palma directed, you know, he was known for aping Hitchcock in a modern Mm. way. He had hits under his belt. What would you say? Lots of other noir, like not just like Hitchcocky, but like yeah, dressed to kill. Um, but then there was bigger. You could see him going in an action direction with like Scarface, The Untouchables. He just did Carlito's Way, which was a big hit. Um, people were glossing over Bonfire of the Vanities because that didn't quite work out. But Brian De Palma could do many things, and Tension was probably at the top of his list. And certainly this movie is investing in that off the bat as opposed to the later movies, which are going to be stunt heavy. Um, but this was a big movie, and Cruz, Cruz had demands. He was in charge of this movie. Uh, and he had the money to back him up, and he was a stunt junkie, and he was going to do whatever the heck he wanted. Uh, he was the auteur. And I, I got a quote. Entertainment Weekly, which did a 1995 profile on the movie. Um, so what what happened was they were rewriting the script on the fly. Uh, the, the script was, in the end, credited to David Kep, who did Jurassic Park, and Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown. Uh, and they were just rewriting the whole thing on the fly because Cruz is wheeling and dealing, trying to get some stunts in this. He did, definitely pushed for the uh, the tank scene, that first scene where he uses the red green gum and blows up a giant, like, 16 ton vat of of aquarium water and it splashes oh yeah in the restaurant you're talking about yeah and apparently they wanted to De Palma was like we must use a stunt double we got to use a stunt double and and Cruz was like and they couldn't get the shot because the problem was when you break glass with tons of water that rushes at actors the the glass tends to like float with the water that's splashing yeah. at them, and that could be dangerous. <laughs> so Tommy don't care. Yeah, Tommy don't don't care. And De Palma <laughs> apparently spends this whole movie just like unable to work with Cruz. They are just constantly fighting. De Palma doesn't even do the press rounds at the end. Wow, um, which is amazing for how like good it is. I think the out like the outcome I, as like a story as like performances yeah. visual effects like I think it they it really does an excellent job and holds up quite well so that's that's surprising. Yeah. So in this Entertainment Weekly profile, the quote is: "Trouble between the director and the star producer supposedly flared throughout the production. Mm-hmm. Brian had the." Sh- Beaten out of him by Tom and Paula Wagner, says a De Palma crony. Tom second-guessed everything he did. One of the reasons the movie went over budget is that Cruz would change his mind at the last minute. I want this couch to be red, not beige, he said. Things like that. I think Brian felt pulverized during the making of this film. Pulverized enough to ditch Mission Impossible's press junket earlier that month. Uh, It was just complete 
chaos. But you're absolutely right, Russ. Like the finished product is it's a lot of Brian De Palma's movie. I mean, it's a sleek, it's sexy, it's full of split diopter shots where two different people are in focus and you're very aware that this is a movie being filmed with a camera. Um, Video watches. Video watches, really bad email <laughs> graphics, job oh, 316. Man. I love the email graphics in this where the where the letter like flies through the screen. Oh, oh. Whoosh. glorious. Yeah, that's how real spy work is. Spycraft is done. <laughs> um, and I think the movie has genuine twists that you wouldn't see without people who could really defend them. Like a studio would not allow you to hire a bunch of famous people and then kill them within mm-hmm. like the first 15 to 20 minutes. As you said, uh, uh, what's his name? Emilio. Emilio Estevez dies gruesomely <laughs> in the beginning and so does everyone else. Uh, and then Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise is left to to figure out where the knock list is, you know, break into the CIA headquarters in Langley and 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 figure out this mystery. It's a real mystery mm-hmm. movie. Uh, yeah. Now, you said it was your favorite. Why? Why is it your favorite? I, I think I think the struggles I enjoy all the other movies. I, again, maybe not two, but like the other ones I certainly enjoy. But I also accept the fact that they are very silly light popcorn movies that are basically built to like set up these big action set pieces but by and large like they don't really hold on their own as a story and when i first saw the original mission impossible it was i think in the theaters and i didn't understand really most of what was going on plot wise but having watched it multiple times since then i obviously have a very good handle on it it's like a very intricate interesting it like makes a lot of logical sense and I mean, granted, maybe not breaking into the CIA logical sense, but like just the the beats of it are like very like almost grounded in a certain way. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I I think it it feels like a very mature take on what is essentially like a very lighthearted genre. Yeah, I think the miraculous thing is that any of it makes sense or any of the movies seem to connect with audiences because I don't think the stories are comprehensible at all, almost in any of them, even these most recent ones. It's just like, what are you chasing? It doesn't matter because yeah. everyone's charismatic enough. The action beats are, uh, are well choreographed. I mean, especially in this first one where they get to explain how they're going to do the heist and then we get to see it and then we get to mm-hmm. see some of the things go wrong. Um, that. That's just that's been consistent throughout too. I think De Palma set some bricks down, and they and they followed suit. Like here's how to do the Mission Impossible TV show in the best possible way, uh, operational. Even Steven Soderbergh in like Ocean's Eleven, I think, owes a little bit to this first Mission Impossible movie. Um, and then what I alluded to before, <laughs> Jim Phelps, played by John Voight in this movie. Uh, sorry, Peter Graves, um, returns and he becomes the mole. And this was like a mind-blowing revelation. It was, you know, it's a great twist of the movie too because Tom, Cruise love, Tom Cruise's love interest becomes part of the, the plot against him to frame mm-hmm. him. As you said, Ethan Hunt is always on the run. Obviously, IMF is coming after him again. And the they CIA also kill after him. Jim Phelps off kill quotes like in the first five you minutes. So like you really do not expect it yeah um and so yeah no it it takes some serious turns i i think uh yeah i was i i got that i was like supposed to trust him and then not <laughs> yeah but uh, also what's his name from the professional uh this was the first movie i saw him in the french actor oh yes jean uh jean renault jean renault yes flying the copter 
Yeah. Um, everyone's bad. Everyone turns against our good friend, Ethan Hunt, um, including Martin Landau, the late Martin Landau, who as recently <laughs> as like 2013, I was reading an interview with MTV where he was just bashing the Mission Impossible franchise, just <laughs> sacrilege to turn Jim Phelps into a bad guy. So Whatever. Our, our, our pleasure is one man's trash. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's right. Well, the one uh, aside here that I had, I really, did you guys ever play the Mission Impossible video game? Loved it. Of course. On N64. It was a great game. Great game. It was impossible to play. Yeah. You need to be get good is what they say on the internet, Matt Patches. Oh, it was man. cool. You could like take on the role of other people. You could steal their faces. There was like a great party level that took place like in like like an actual party and you could like walk it, around and it wasn't it like a combat sequence existing alongside Goldeneye. Yeah, right? but it was a very different I think it was a very different game well, like it's it third had person. a lot of non yeah, third person but also a lot of for like sure. interesting non-combat stuff. I but, remember it being delayed for an extended period. I mean it came out in 98 and the movie came out in 96 so it kind of tells you. But yeah, it took a while to come out. I yeah. remember. 12-year-old yeah. me was not that interested in non-combat stuff. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, we have to get to my jam. What well, is your my, jam? My should be jam. Mission Impossible 2. Bye. Here okay. comes Mission Impossible 2. So Set it up. Here's the setup. Uh, well, we should say that Mission Impossible 1 was actually a huge hit. I think it's worth noting that it made like $450 million worldwide. Um, biggest Mission Impossible to date still, uh, if you adjust for inflation, it was a huge. Yeah, that's huge probably hit. like eight hundred. What is it? Eight hundred million, probably somewhere around there. Like, uh, in today. It's only ninety six. I think it was like. I think it's like three hundred fifty million. Uh, Just to, uh, well, made one hundred eighty domestic. So you're right. Sure. Four hundred fifty might be almost double that. Um, so Mission Impossible two. It's unclear why they went with John Woo, but I think we can draw some obvious conclusions. John Woo was a huge action director at this time. Obviously, he came. Uh, from hits like The Killer and Hard Boiled, these classics of the Hong Kong action genre. But he also directed Hard Target, Broken Arrow, Face Off just a few years earlier. Um, he was a king. And De Palma sure as hell wasn't coming back <laughs> to direct the sequel. So Tom Cruise needed someone who could maybe lean more into his action junkie side. And this is like the complete pendulum swing. Uh, it's interesting, you know, again, Mission Impossible 1 was 1996. Mission Impossible 2 was 2000, which is hard to imagine. I would never associate Mission Impossible 2 with the, the new millennium, the willennium, you know? Um, <laughs> sure, 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 sure. <laughs> but shooting was delayed on Mission Impossible 2 because Cruz had a two-year commitment to Stanley Kubrick and the Eyes Wide Shut production. Oh, Stanley. Which I think is awesome. Uh, and the movie was, again, was written by Robert Town. It actually has a story credited to... Brandon Braga and um, R Ronald D. Moore from Star Trek The Next oh, Generation, wow. uh, yeah. which kind of makes sense. This movie definitely gets a little more sci-fi uh, with the whole chimera virus. I guess I literally don't remember any. I, here's what I remember, and we talked about this before we started recording. Yes. I remember the rock climbing scene at the very beginning. Of course. It was all over I, the trailers. It was like something you'd see on the on the front of a Taco Bell promotional. Yeah, cup. yeah it was on a bus. It was yeah. everywhere. He, uh, Tom Cruise in a tank top hanging from a rocks. So I remember that scene. And I remember a John Woo signature set of doves appearing at one point during the movie. Yes, Tom Cruise runs down a hallway and then... It, the camera slows down to slow motion as he runs through the doves and bicycle kicks a goon in the face. <laughs> it's a 
work of genius, I gotta say. <laughs> it's awesome. And um yeah, it's a pretty hard left turn. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Like Can, from the first movie, tonally, it's almost night and day. I, I have but a theory. But that's why it's so exciting. Yeah. Rewatching. I, I, have, it. I have a theory about why it doesn't work. And this, I, as a kid. Well, here's the thing. It does work. Matt so Pat continue on. Disagree with okay, you. Okay. But we'll, we'll okay, cross that okay. bridge. <laughs> here's why I think it doesn't work as a Mission Impossible movie. Okay. I'll say that because I think it's enjoyable. Um, as a kid, I like grew up on uh, John Woo like illegal bootleg VHS tapes of John Woo movies. My neighbor was obsessed with it. You know, like the, like older, like he was like probably like six years older than me. It was like, oh, I want to be cool like him. I have to watch what he likes. He likes this John Woo. I'm obsessed. So when Mission Impossible 2 came out, I was like, this is going to be the biggest movie of all time. John Woo is a genius. Like the, actually probably the only genius to ever live. Um, And now he's working on this series and I loved Mission Impossible 1. But, the thing about John Woo movies, and I'm sure people will argue with this, I'll just brace for it, is they work best when they're about, like, the hard-edged cop. It's, like, very brute force, and it's, like, it's taking something that's very brute force and making it elegant, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. like, really gritty shooting, really, uh, you know, I'm a tough detective, but I also, like, can effectively fly, through the air and 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 turn gunplay into uh, poetry. Yeah, it's uh, a it's a wuxia informed. Uh, yes, style. thank you. But taking that in something that actually is like very blunt, and then like the magic of it is taking something that's very blunt and making it elegant, doesn't work when the entire pleasure of Mission Impossible is the opposite. It's taking something that's very blunt and making it super complicated for the shits and giggles of it. And also, so much of what is good, which you mentioned, and the later movies have been really good about, is Tom Cruise is best when he stinks at what he does. Like, when he makes just tons of mistakes. Night and Day is very good, even though people Mm -hmm. wrote it off, for that reason, too. Um, And... In Mission you mean Impossible like the two. characters he plays should be bad at what yeah, they're doing? Yeah, like the or, or or like they're just human. Like Edge of Tomorrow. You, yeah, Edge of Tomorrow. Sure. Time and time again, you're gonna you're gonna screw up because like it's impossible to be perfect. Um, but in in Mission Impossible two, he's like almost Neo in the Matrix. Yeah. Like he like literally wears a black. Yes, giant yes. black leather coat black glasses the motorcycle the motorcycle thing which would be so much better if it had failed like there's just so many things where he's too good at what yeah. he does what do you, I, what do you think patches am i am i off base here i think you are off base and i'll tell you why and we'll okay. bleed directly into mission Impossible three because these movies have to be now seen against each other and people praised mission Impossible three a ton when it came out and obviously dissed Mission Impossible 2 hard and having rewatched both of them back to back Mission Impossible 2 is such an absolute pleasure because it's all about audaciousness it's all about these wild camera moves in your face the Hong Kong style but combined with Tom Cruise's persona it's like the whole movie is that scene where he's flailing back and forth as he climbs the cliff. Every scene is like fire and rock and roll and Hans Zimmer wailing on the guitar (laughs) and everything being way too loud. It's so funny. I was reading this interview with Robert Town around the movie that came out. Again, he had to write on the fly. The script was not done when they started shooting. They had to hit the release date. And he's just trying to incorporate all of Tom Cruise's action notes. And then last minute, they added this love triangle with 
Tande Newton, who is amazing in this movie. She's so charismatic. And I just – you wish that she could have been an action star. Seeing her in Westworld today, it's like they totally missed the boat. She didn't come back for Mission Impossible 3. Apparently, they offered that to her. But she's great in this movie. I so forgot much she fun. was in this. I totally forgot. It's wow, the that's only amazing. movie that dares to – make Tom Cruise have sexuality in any way. There's like a lot of sensual breathing and smooching. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's all fire. So Robert Town was like, it sucks because I try to write all this dialogue and make the movie work, but the sound mix is so loud and Hans Zimmer's movie, music is so booming that you can't hear any of the words and the movie is incomprehensible. And he's absolutely right. And it doesn't matter because it's all about John Woo's camera in this movie and Tom Cruise making silly faces and Tom Cruise facing off against Duggery Scott, who is essentially playing evil Tom Cruise. I mean, it's the, the plot of the movie, again, incomprehensible, is that Ethan Hunt's trying to track down this biological weapon called the Chimera virus that's been uh stolen by a rogue IMF agent. There's always someone bad in the IMF. Yep. I don't know why they court such terrible Yeah, they're not doing good vetting no, on those no. agents. <laughs> I mean LinkedIn people, come on. Um but yeah, it's just bigger wilder stunts through to through and just watching it on a small screen, it all really pops. Uh there's a quote from John Woo again, EW was all over the Mission Impossible franchise in the nineties uh, and two thousands, but this is from an EW profile of Woo where he was like, I, he was thinking about the rock climbing bit, saying, I was really mad that Tom Cruise wanted to do it, but I tried to stop him and I couldn't. I was so scared. I was sweating. I couldn't even watch the monitor when we shot it. <laughs> That's the whole movie. It's just Tom Cruise like, I'm going to be on a motorcycle and jump in the air and hit Doug Ray Scott in the face. Or I'm going to bicycle kick during the pigeon bit that you must put in the movie. Um, so he, let me ask you a question. You might know this. Yeah. Do they do the super risky Tom Cruise stunts first? And if it doesn't go well, they cancel the movie because Tom Cruise is dead? Or do they do them at the end because if he just breaks a limb, they don't have to, like, worry about the rest of the movie? You know, there aren't too many stories of him actually being injured. So, But, like, what he's doing could theoretically go very wrong. I think that myth is a little inflated, although in this most recent movie, Fallout, he actually did, like, break his leg doing a jump stunt. And they that was, like, halfway through production. So it doesn't yeah. seem like they organized that around him. What do they do seem to organize, because it's consistent on almost every Mission Impossible movie, is rewrites and, like, completely changing the movie on the fly. No script mm -hmm. seems to have been finished before going into production. And while that sounds bad, I think in this day and age where we hear about, you know, Warner Brothers stepping in on Suicide Squad and trying to like change the whole movie halfway through and then you get this jumbled mess. This movie is, again, it's Tom Cruise's baby and he's going to demand rewrites on the fly and he hires the right people who can make it work. Christopher McQuarrie, who rewrote Ghost Protocol, the fourth installment and directed and wrote and directed the fifth and sixth ones. You know, he's a pro. He, they work together on Valkyrie and he steps in and he rewrites the whole movie. He's he's like a screenwriting 101 teacher. He can write around uh, Tom Cruise's demands. And I think this is why, in my opinion, you see the movies get better over time. Robert Town, he's a classic guy. He wrote Chinatown. But he can't he, – you, you read interviews with him around Mission Impossible 2 and he's like, I just can't – I've never written a script – where a star has come in and be like, I'm going to jump out of an airplane. And then I have to like somehow get from point A to point B to make it yeah. happen. He it's kind of like a video game, right? Incapable. <laughs> yeah, or like, it's like a video game. Right. We already have this level. How yeah. are we going to do it? And in Mission Impossible 2, it's just more and more absurd. The the One of the first times Thunder Newton's character meets Tom Cruise, they're racing in sports cars. And then they have this like sex scene in cars. 
the cars are just dancing together and like being sensual, but on the road, they're like flipping around while they're <laughs> staring at each other from the driver's seats. It's outrageous and it's so fun. Um, I, I, okay, I you couldn't tell you what me. it's I'll, about. I'll go back and watch it. Go too. back and watch it because okay. then we have to talk, have the disappointing conversation about Mission Impossible 3, which people seem to. I love really like that. That's totally my overvalued. second most favorite of the movies. So what do you think about Mission Impossible 3? Do you want to... I really... Yeah. Here's a a few things that I think Mission Impossible 3 does well, and I know you're going to disagree with me. One, a villain that you actually remember. I think outside of John Voight, gun to my head, I could not remember any of the other villains except for Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays like... I don't even know what his job was, but I think he did a... Very memorable character, clearly. No, his job is finding her... And hurting her, right? And when well, you quote, watch him, wow, he hurts her, right? He has the quote in the trailer that everyone remembers, but he also has a very entertaining scene where Tom Cruise has to take his identity in the bathroom. Uh, I don't know. So he has he just two like, good scenes yeah. in a in a two hour movie. That's... Yeah, but he's the villain. How many? How often do you think the villain's going to be on camera in general? I mean, maybe more, or at least doing more interesting things. The funny thing about Mission Impossible 3 is everyone remembers that trailer. What a dynamite trailer. That's such it was a, a great trailer. A J.J. Abrams thing to home run out of the park and then completely fall apart well, but when it, it comes to actually uh, but again, doing a movie. It, it was, I think, what it does right is it reverts what it did in Mission Impossible 2, which was like, Mission Impossible 2, he's Neo. This is a return to form and closer to what Chris Plant likes about Tom Cruise movies, which is to say there's a lot of Tom Cruise being bad at his job in this movie and kind of being a goofball. I'm not you so don't sure think so? about that. No, I don't. Um, and this is what I think the movie probably gets wrong. It doesn't take a stance on Ethan Hunt. It doesn't dramatize him at all. He kind of has this relationship with um, uh, Carrie, Russell. F- Carrie Russell. Felicity in the J.J. Abrams verse. Um, mm. You know, he's kind of her teacher, her mentor, and he also has a wife in this movie. They try and give him some emotional anchors, but it doesn't really impact anything. This movie is an episode of television, but we haven't seen the other episodes, so we don't really care that it's the season finale. It's a very strange movie. But uh, to get to how J.J. Abrams ends up directing this movie very quickly. So David Fincher was going to make Mission Impossible 3 in 2002 again. Maybe they'll maybe they'll actually get a sequel out in like a three year window. Nope, there's going to be six years in between Mission Impossible Two and Mission Impossible Three, despite Mission Impossible Two being a huge, huge hit. Um, David Fincher was going to do it, didn't happen. So they hired Joe Carnahan. Uh, are you guys familiar with his movies? Yeah, somewhat, yeah. Smoke and Aces. That was a cool movie. They hired him, and um, he spent 15 months actually prepping the movie, getting everything, the script in order, getting the the set pieces ready. 15 months, he just walks off the movie. And it's because... Uh, <laughs> he didn't get fired? He quit? No, he quit. So Dan Gil- he wrote the script with Dan Gilroy, who did Nightcrawler, that Jake Gyllenhaal movie. And they wrote a script where Ethan Hunt was going to face off against this kind of like Timothy McVeigh-like bomber character played by Kenneth Branagh. And uh, Carnahan, I actually had a great conversation with Carnahan years ago about all these movies he's never made. He walks off a lot of movies. Read that on Grandland, a little self-promotion. Um, so Joe Carnahan wanted this punk rock version of Mission Impossible, down, dirty, gritty, and facing off a bomber. And he wanted to make this like $50 million version. But then, of course, Tom Cruise wants to make a $186 million movie that has lots of stunts. So Tom, they, Tom Cruise hires Robert Town once again to come rewrite the script as they are prepping to actually shoot the dang thing. And Joe Carnahan just walks off. 
His quote uh, to me actually was, I thought it was bad and uninspiring. I thought it was more of the same from Mission Impossible 2. He walks off the movie. So what does Tom Cruise do? Well, according to the Mission Impossible 3 DVD, Tom Cruise just finished binging two seasons of Alias. So he called J.J. Abrams. <laughs> good. Those first two seasons of Alias are quite good. They're good. They're worth. good. But they're definitely television. And sure. maybe if you love the Mission Impossible TV show, you could see why J.J. Abrams could bring the team aspects back, could make the, the chit-chat that made the show so fun. You could bring that element into the movie. They certainly, He certainly does. Um, this was before. I thought this was post-Lost, though, wasn't it? It's during Lost. It's during oh, okay. Lost. Um, and th- that's one of the reasons that Abrams, it takes a little longer for them to end up making the movie. Mm-hmm. I want to interject with one quick fan theory that I have. Okay. So Tom Cruise's cousin is this guy, William Mapother. Yeah, I, kn- I know the actor. He is a goon in Mission Impossible 2. So they've worked together. Now, William Mapother was also in the first season of Lost. He played Ethan. And I want to know. <gasps> I want to know. Hunt. I want to know if he got the hookup with J.J. Abrams from William Mapother and this alias story is a fabrication. Uh, if William Mapother was like, you got to hire my buddy J.J. Uh, I mean, at that point, he killed the lost J.J. Uh, Abrams had just spent an outrageous amount of money on a pilot. I'm pretty sure Tom Cruise knew who he was. That's fine. And also his name was Ethan and lost William Mapother. Coincidence? Puzzle yes, box. Yes, probably. Probably a coincidence. Lining all the clues, J.J. Abrams style. Anyway, J.J. Abrams uh, playing, makes Do you movie. like this movie? Yeah. Mission Impossible 3? I, you know, it, it, I am not surprised uh, to hear either of your opinions. I, I, it feels like a movie that I remember liking, uh, and then I try to remember it, and I don't, I, I can't, I can't remember anything. Yeah, and, I, and that Nothing might happens. also be because it doesn't have the, the scene. Mission Plus 1 has the wire trick in the helicopter, 2 has the, the rock climbing and the mm-hmm. motorcycles, 4 is uh, the skyscraper in the sandstorm, 5 is the... The airplane and is the opera also in five? Yes, the well, the opera is I, I think maybe for the, the three, peak of the, of the series, the three bridge is the bridge. probably the, the three. The three moment is on the bridge. Yeah. They have that like assault with the helicopters. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's the right, big moment. Right. That's, that's but I agree. Like I don't. It doesn't have the impact of breaking into the CIA. Um, they do the Vatican break in. Oh yeah, and the Vatican break in is I think good. I uh, there's a number of, like there's a there's a nice parkour thing at the end of the movie. <sighs> Um, I think I I am entertained. I I don't think I am it's entertained. The greatest movie ever, but no. and I also here's what I would also say. I think uh, uh, Tom Cruise sells his relationship with his wife. Uh, I forget the uh, Monahan. I think plays his wife Michelle Monahan. Yeah, yes. Michelle Monahan. I think they sell that relationship and like his desire to save her better than most like wife husband saving each other movies. Um, yeah, you kind of wish uh, me watching it again. I f- understand why Abrams had the instinct to like get more team in there and like have Luther Thing Rames's character talking about their relationships mid mission. But like yeah. that's something you do on television because you don't have the budget to pull off a really cool big screen no, spectacle. It's the character development. You don't. It can't all be explosions, map patches. Well, it's funny that you say that because one of the original mandates in the original Mission Impossible show was to have as little character development as possible, to have this kind of tableau rasa idea of the characters where they could just go on missions. You could just sure. do cloak and dagger stuff. And I think in Mission Impossible 3, I, I actually really like the Tom Cruise, Michelle Monaghan stuff in the party. We were talking off the podcast about the party that they have at the beginning, which is yes. like maybe his most relatable charismatic character ever, or at least since Jerry Maguire. 
Um, but like that stuff's fun. Doing it mid-mission is really boring because you don't get actual action. You don't get thrills. You don't get the intensity of the operation, which is what Mission Impossible for me has always been about. And you don't get someone at least countering him. Like that doesn't inform Philip Seymour Hoffman's scenes in this movie. Unfortunately, he has nothing to do. He's one note the whole time. He has the trailer moment and that's it. Uh, I do not recommend necessarily rewatching this movie, but there's still in the context. If you want the full context, I guess Tom Cruise does get like something put in his head that can make it explode. And then he has to run around going like, I got something in my head. Um, and that's fun. Uncanny <laughs> representation. He turns very red in this movie, which is a plus. And he does it throughout the series. And I've always enjoyed just like how veiny and bursting Tom Cruise could get. Um, unfortunately, this movie bombed. Like it did not do very well. Oh, wow, at the I didn't box know that. It's only made $130 million here in the U.S. And I mean, the thing to know about Tom Cruise is that he can open movies overseas no matter what it's still made almost 400 million dollars overseas um so there's a reason to keep going and pushing this franchise the potential but yeah it didn't do so well um and with ghost protocol the fourth installment jj abrams kind of slides in the producer role i think abrams had the right instincts he is the one who introduced like the machine that makes the masks how does it work that stuff's really I don't intriguing. think anyone cared. People, people <laughs> no, care about that. Yeah, people want to know like how it. it works. Okay. They want to know the secrets of the gadgets. Sure. You don't think yeah. so? What's in I the guess box? so. He had the right idea with the team. Like, that was on the right track. He just needed someone. What if they had to steal the printing fluid for their mask making thing? What would they use to get in there? To the, to the print. If they ran out of fluid for the mask making thing, what would they replace how would they break? Well, how would they break in to steal more if they couldn't use the mask thing? Not every, I mean, in Mission Possible 2, he just dives <laughs> down a, an air tunnel and uh, he, does, he flips uses his the mask back. thing in that one, too. He does. There are some clever, that in the opening scene of Mission Impossible 2, they use a mask to pretend to be Tom Cruise. And then it turns Whoa, out to be Doug Ray Scott, heavy. which is the greatest nightmare of all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Ghost Protocol is, a, it's a big step for the series because it, it emphasizes the stunts and it emphasizes the the moviness of the series i think it was a imax became a huge selling point for ghost protocol yeah i remember in the marketing they made a huge deal about the fact that tom cruise the actor was performing the stunt on the what is it the burj khalifa burj khalifa yeah um like at that like that felt very meta and it was the first time that i'd ever seen that in a movie you mean where it's like like in the marketing yeah. This death-defying stunt. It's almost yeah. like the circus or something. Right, in Coney Island in 1910. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never believe what this man can do. Uh, and yeah, and this is another, it's a really like slimmed down version of the plot. I think the other tricky part about Mission Impossible 3 is that it's super complicated. And then in the end, they're chasing the rabbit's foot. And the yes. last gag at Mission Impossible 3 is Ethan Hunt asking Lawrence Fishburne, who is running the IMF at that point, he says, what? is the rabbit's foot and then Lawrence Fisher goes can't tell you and that's it you that's never funny. find out what they've been chasing the whole time but and that's it, the whole book bu- I mean it's a, it's not it's funny a it's actually ridiculous it's no insulting. it's funny it's like a nod to the MacGuffin it's a very J.J. Abrams thing to do it is that's very true. clever of you Mr. Abrams but in Ghost <laughs> Protocol it's pretty obvious what they have to do uh, obtain nuclear codes that have been stolen and they have to go to a lot of places to get them it's very bond uh, more than just any just change of the, other the codes guys 
Yeah. Well, it's 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 a whole process. It's a two-step so confirmation on that. Is this the the movie where they were going to switch it to Jeremy Renner? They were like setting him up to take Tom Cruise's. Place. Oh, really? That's yes. exactly right. So the original script was going to set up a younger star that Cruise could pass the baton off to. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, and then they got they cast Jeremy Renner. Who's <laughs> only nine years <laughs> younger than Tom Cruise. And it started not to make a whole lot of sense. I mean, just to back up a little bit, the Brad Bird, who made The Incredibles at Ratatouille uh, for Pixar, ends up directing this movie. It's his first live action movie. Um, and he had been gunning to make a live action movie for a while. He was, act- was going to make a movie based on the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that would have been Pixar's first live action movie. Uh, with Warner Brothers, some weird team up there, and that didn't work out. Cost too much. Original properties, boo. So <laughs> he gets hired to do this movie, and Brad Bird's an interesting character because he has this awful reputation. His whole career is about him being a perfectionist, someone who's pushing everybody on the crew to do the absolute best job they have, and like using every dollar that he has in his budget to get the greatest art out of the commercial product that he is inevitably making. And it made him a very like troubled figure in Hollywood for a long time. And Pixar kind of saved him. Uh, and it oh, it's, makes perfect sense why Brad Bird would get recruited by Tom Cruise to do this. He's a visual storyteller. This is going to be a stunt-filled movie. And it's got to go big on IMAX and go close on Tom Cruise when necessary. But then you have someone who's like calling the shots in real life. Like, Tom Cruise is a hard person to work with if it hasn't become clear based on the experiences of Mission Impossible <laughs> 1 and 2. He's working with like the top directors and steamrolling them. And then you have a guy like Brad Bird who's like, I'm going to make the movie exactly the way I think it needs to be made, storyboarded, special effects, perfect. It's going to be a lot of comedy. This is the movie really ups the comedy. There's such funny gags. If you remember when they go to the Kremlin for the first time, they use this screen device to kind of like reflect oh, what yeah. the people are looking at. And it starts glitching and yeah. the faces are all – it's a an, total animation gag. And that's really – that's Bird. That's so quirky. Um, and that, that streak just runs throughout. So Tom Cruise and Brad Bird are totally on the same page and they want everything to be real and they want everything to be grand. And unfortunately, like handing it off to Jeremy Renner never made sense. Like this is Tom Cruise's franchise through and through. How did they think that this would happen? That was probably a Paramount Pictures dream. Um, but it's it wasn't going to happen. So he's they, also like you know. uh, like say what you will, good actor Jeremy Renner, not charismatic in the least. I think like, about that a lot. Like who could who could replace Tom Cruise if Mission Impossible was to keep going and he needed to retire because he's going to be sixty something soon and he can't he hang yeah because you can't necessarily you can't put, pick like a, a a notable like goofy you couldn't do like a Chris Pratt it wouldn't work. So you'd need someone that's kind of known for more serious stuff and then make them do a little bit more goofy. But have the drive to like, hey, I know the lawyers and the insurance companies don't want me to dangle out of a helicopter, but eh, I want to. No, I don't think that'll ever happen. Once Tom Cruise is gone, you'll never see that No one has clout. So it'll be interesting (laughs) what happens in the long run. But Jeremy Jeremy Renner wasn't going to be that person. So Cruise gets... Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote Valkyrie, to come on board and rewrite the script again while they're shooting and make oh the plot God. simpler and make Cruise the star. And that's exactly what happens. And Poor Jeremy. Well, the weird thing about the movie is, so there's, it feels like that is the entire movie. And then there is, it reminds me of Solo, 
there's a, a moment near the very end where there, a sandstorm hits, and everything is, the screen is just covered in gunk. Like, it's just hideous to look at. And a big twist happens there that allows the story essentially to pivot out of this entire strategy of making Renner vital to the series. And it's it, that, it, the same thing happened with Solo with the Kessel Run for me, where they were like, well, we need an entire new middle of the movie. So where can we shoot something where it's like the cheapest special effects possible? It doesn't really need to look like much of anything. And in this kind of like pocket, we will completely change the movie and everything that happens before and after it will like effectively not reference it. Like it will act as if it wasn't even there. It is very, 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 very strange. How many people remember what happens after Tom Cruise climbs the Burj Khalifa? Do you remember the scene? Is the scene There's is a sandstorm. There. Well, there's a sandstorm, but then they leave Burj Khalifa. I believe they go to India. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and that's they, where I fell asleep in the theater. No joke. Drop, I literally fell asleep right there. They drop Jeremy Renner down like a windpipe. There's like a parking garage. No, that's later. Oh. Yeah, no. no the, <laughs> but that's the, close. That's almost the end of the movie. There's a lot yeah. of this movie. Yeah. They and after the Burj Khalifa... No one remembers it. Yeah, Renner gets a shot at effectively doing a Tom Cruise scene. Yeah. And he's it, the one who gets the, like, drop down and almost hit the floor yeah. moment. Yeah. And then, and then they tried to do this exact same thing with Born Identity, right? Yeah, he was in the Born Legacy. He was going to take over that franchise. Born, it, it also didn't work. He was addicted to chems. He just screamed the word chems for, like, two hours. And for some <laughs> reason, that wasn't a Maybe it's just worthy Jeremy. spinoff. Uh, the, the other thing I remember about this movie, again, I did fall asleep towards the end of it because it was very long but the other thing i remember is that as you mentioned in your notes here it was played on imax i saw it on imax and before the imax movie they showed um the opening scene to dark knight rises and that opening scene like sold so many people on the dark knight rises because like it is an outrageously cool opening scene one of the coolest opening scenes in filmmaking history and the rest of the film is kind of trash in comparison. They destroy a plane and drop it down on the ground. But very smart uh, to, to open the movie that way. That was probably the highlight of Mission Impossible 4 for me was seeing that scene. I mean, I think that's a huge reason why this was the third most successful Mission Impossible 2. It's, it had a very curious release. In that They put it in IMAX theaters first. If you went and saw it in IMAX, you would see it opening weekend. So mm -hmm. the opening, if you look at like the box office stats, it has terrible, it's like... 20 million, 30 million dollars or something opening weekend. But that's oh, only that's because funny. it was only playing in IMAX theaters. And it was a great way to kind of build the buzz. And I do think that Ghost Protocol has, it's actually pretty emotional rewatching it. I love the Iron Giant, Brad Bird's animated film from 99. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the greatest movies of all time for me. And that is also about accidentally launching a nuke and hoping someone can stop it. And that he basically lifts that whole cloth into. The, the nukes actually go off in Ghost Protocol, if you if you recall. Spoilers. And uh, what? Come on. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, and he saves the day. Sorry. Yeah, um, we warned people earlier. And now now we're catching up with the the most recent a uh, movie that you apparently hate, uh, Russ. Uh, you do not like do you... Mission Impossible: Rogue no, Nation. No, 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 no. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm using I, a mask I, I put your it, face. I put um, it ahead play. of two. And it's a very fine movie. I'd give it like a solid B kind of score. 
but do I remember a lot of it? No, I don't. I remember him being underwater for an extended period. Like, I remember the big heist of this movie being like, we have to be in this water tank for a long time, and we're going to be swirling around in this water tank, and I remember not being emotionally engaged with that heist specifically. I found that, I rewatched that recently again, and that is a terrifying scene. If you are yeah. worried about, like, suffocating at all, it is very long. It goes on for, not like, five or six at all minutes, about obviously, because there's a ticking <laughs> clock. But like mm. that freaked me out. What a good idea! I'm um, I'm on the same page. I think this is actually my favorite Mission Impossible film. What? Yeah, I think I I I. It doesn't do any one thing best, but it does every. It's like it's number two or three, or like it's ranked second in everything it does. Yeah, like it. it the stunt is not the best stunt, but it's. The second best. That stunt. was the plane. The, the, you like yeah. climbed on a plane. Maybe, maybe it doesn't have the most humor, but it's like second best humor. Maybe like also I don't know. Actually, the opera, the opera house scene might be the best. The opera scene. house scene is very good. Three gunmen, one opera. Yeah. It's uh, so good. I, I totally agree. I think Christopher McQuarrie, who wrote and directed this movie, his directorial debut, um, really learns the lessons. He's a screenwriter at heart. He studied these movies. He knows exactly how to build tension. He knows how to tip the cap to everything all the other directors have done. And this movie, I think it's the most tense since the first Mission Impossible. It has some really cool stunts that aren't – I don't think you can outdo the Burj Khalifa uh, climb, so he doesn't try to. It's all mm-hmm. about the choreography. It's about writing action into these scenes. If I'm talking about like the, the thrills and the fun of that opera scene, it's like – What's happening in this pocket? What's happening in that pocket? What's happening over here? And really knowing at all times and kind of like the balancing act of that. Um, and and it won't surprise you to know that halfway through production, they stopped working and stopped shooting on the movie so that McQuarrie, Tom Cruise, and as far as I know, an unnamed third screenwriter came in and like rewrote the whole ending of the movie, hmm. which has stuff like that. Um, there's like a bomb on his chest and if he moves – or a bomb on the seat and if he moves, he's going to blow up and trying to figure out how to shoot a bunch of people coming at them. It's just like – it's so clever. So it's such a clever movie. Yeah. And smaller yeah, scale. I don't, I don't know why it doesn't like – I mean uh, the opera house scene I remember – I remember the plane – I do remember in the in the plane high, uh, uh, action sequence – there's some yucks to it, right? Where he's like stuck in the door or something. Isn't there like a like a physical gag like in that stunt scene? In which one? In the init- in this movie when he's like climbing on the plane from outside. I thought that there was oh, like yeah. they so t- what what happens is he the plane is about to take off and Tom mm. Cruise runs. No surprise there. Loves yeah. he loves a good run. Um, catches the plane, but Benji Simon Pegg's character who somehow prevailed and made it from like being the kind of fat nerd and it's really <laughs> rude. Like J.J. James' treatment of Benji's character in 3 is just rude. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he prevailed. He's cool now. And he can't get the airplane door open in Rogue right. Nation. So yeah, Cruz is standing over And that's exactly what you were talking about, Chris. Like failing is so amusing to know that there's they're not superheroes. The gadgets don't work perfectly. There's failure involved with doing a great job and saving the day. Tom Cruise is standing there on an actual plane as they pimped a lot in the promotional materials for this movie. Him like really clinging to the side of this giant jet and just screaming and being like, Benji, get the door open. And it's (laughs) massively entertaining. And then there's like the payoff. They get it and he straps himself to a giant payload and like takes off out of the plane. It's hilarious. 
Yeah, I guess I got to rewatch it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just take these movies in and I'm like, okay, that was a good time. And then it just flies right out my ear. Like, I don't even remember half yeah. of that movie. I think that there's something to be said about the production value, too, for like assessing the why these movies are fun and why they last and seem to connect with a lot of people. I think that um, they look amazing each time. But the music is really good. Uh, Michael Giacchino, who is like mm-hmm. the populist composer, started in now, video games. Started in video games. I think he did called. Duty for uh, no, he did. Oh, no, um, what was Spielberg? Uh, Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor, yeah, yeah. For Spielberg, and um, has been aping like John Williams and yeah. other famous Golden Age composers for eons. He was perfect for uh, Mission Possible Three and Ghost Protocol. He worked with uh, Brad Bird on The Incredibles. This kind of like brassy throwback score. He bring, brings it back. But Rogue Nation has an amazing score too. They work the opera. The uh, Puccini, uh, the Puccini opera Nessun Dorma track into the soundtrack, and I think that's just so clever. There's so many nooks and crannies to this. You can tell that one person, or at least Tom Cruise and another, are making their vision each time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in this new movie, Fallout, I felt the same way as I was. You know, again, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that we wrote a lot about the Dark Knight on the site this week, and I wrote a piece about how I didn't think. We'd ever see a movie like The Dark Knight again because it's one person's vision and it's like $150 million budget doing exactly what they want. And while I don't think Fallout is that because it's still the sixth installment of something um, and it has to be for a mass audience because these movies have never been that successful. Rogue Mm -hmm. Nation was not a huge hit. In terms of like the Avengers or what these movies need to be at this point, it only made $195 million here in the U.S., Uh, but Fallout is definitely inching towards that Dark Knight-ish pure vision where you get to do exactly what you want to do at the scale that almost no one on this planet gets to do it at. And wow, it's very exciting. It's definitely the size of the ghost protocol stunts combined with all that cleverness we were just talking about in Rogue Nation. It's like definitely a writer's movie that still gets to have IMAX-sized stunts. It's really cool. I'm extremely excited to see it. I'm seeing it on Tuesday. Um, I will have seen it when this episode goes up, but uh, unfortunately, I can't comment on it now. But wow, I, I have I have one correction pipe, pipe, pipe. to issue. Okay, Uh-oh. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie, his directorial debut was not oh, a yeah, Mission no, Impossible right. film. It was he the, made a Ryan Felipe movie. He made The Way of the Gun, which I remember oh, loving. That. But now that I think back on it might be the most problematic movie made. He followed up the usual suspects with a movie that opens with Ryan Felipe breaking Juliette Lewis's nose. Forgot about that one. I wonder yeah. why. Or not Juliette Lewis, it's no Sarah Silverman. Uh, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah Silverman and- is trash talking about side of a bar and she's like <laughs> some guy's like, what are you gonna do? If you want to fight, you gotta fight me and he's like, no, nah, I'll fight her. And then he breaks her nose. Oh. And it is very brutal. And everything about that movie gets increasingly disturbed. So it's kind of amazing. I mean, that, I think that's the other thing is the Valkyrie is obviously what got him attached to um, to Tom Cruise. And, and it is very bizarre that, like, Tom Cruise effectively saved his career. He wrote some NYPD Blue. He wrote Usual Suspects, Biggest Thing, there was at the time, uh, you know, as like a big juicy script. He gets the opportunity to do Way of the Gun and he directs it. It is a bomb. He doesn't write anything for 
eight years. At which point he writes Valkyrie, and then he does like a few other things, but basically it's like Valkyrie, Jack Reacher, Edge of Tomorrow, Mission Impossible. Yeah, I mean, eight years, that eight-year downtime is definitely him punching up scripts. He is Mr. Script Doctor, and Mm -hmm. like, don't feel bad. He was making... Oh, no, I, I don't feel bad. I'm just saying, you know, he, he wasn't getting to make his own he, They were saving him from, like, doing punch-ups on awful blockbuster movies that we he would not want to take credit for. Yeah, so, he, yeah. I mean, he has his Still name rescued. on Jack the Giant Slayer, and I'm wondering if he was the first person to write that or the last of, like, 500 people to write Well, that. he was a Brian Singer guy for a long <laughs> time. Um, yeah, good move. Well, that was quite an epic. This will unquestionably be our longest episode, Oh, really? I think. Well, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right. There was a lot to go over, and we appreciate your uh, extreme enthusiasm. And uh, I definitely will go back and watch Mission Impossible 2. I, I, I have a newfound uh, respect for it until I go and see it, and then I have a lower respect for your movie taste. Have so we'll some, see. Have a drink, maybe? Okay, Is that allowed so you want me to be it? a little bit toasted Just before have, we watch have this. Have fun. <laughs> have fun. History of oh, fun. Just have a fun that's time. That's true. It's right there in the title. Uh, Matt Padges, thank you so much for being on the show. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, Chris Plant, as always, thank you. So glad you're back. We thank were worried you. about you. I'm okay. Don't worry about me. I'm here. Uh, Allegra will be back next week, I'm sure. Um, we do not have any reader-only memories because I forgot to put it on Twitter. My B, uh, these guest episodes come sometimes throw me for a loop. So I apologize for that. We will have them next week. Uh, until then... Thank you so much for watching The History of Fun, where we explore the hidden backstories behind the things you love to do. Be sure to uh, review the um, thing on iTunes. If you haven't yet, tell us what your favorite Mission Impossible movie is. Is it 2? Am I an idiot for not liking 2? I want to know. I'm not saying 2 is the best. Uh, Well, Matt Patch's quote on the box, the Blu-ray box, it should say, the best. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye! Leap those dips. Goodbye!